Sarah. How are you? I am awesome. You are awesome. So I'm gonna, I'm just gonna come out and say it that this is the first time in sausage of science history that we forgot to press record. I swear I pressed it. I remember pressing it as you were, you were going, oh, and I said, hey, Kara, right after. So you know, whatever I clicked, it wasn't record. It's all right. I'll, I'll take, I don't know, maybe 30, 40% of blame because usually I look up and look for the red button, but today I just trusted and I shouldn't have. I know. Don't trust me. I may, <laughs> no trust, may or may not have clicked the appropriate button. What That's all right. smart, articulate, elegant things did we say in our first non recorded introduction that we should repeat here? I'm pretty sure none of it was eloquent because that's just not our style. However, again, this is one of these memorial episodes that we've been doing for folks who have recently passed. And today we are memorializing Francis Johnston, who passed away just this year on August 20th. And we're bringing on two folks, Babette Zamel and then Lawrence Schell, uh, who are both his students. And really, you should talk a little bit more than I should, because you are academically, familiarly <laughs> related to Frank yeah. Johnston. You know, we have this tradition, in, at least in anthropology, I don't know if other disciplines do it, I assume they do, but Frank Johnson was my academic grandfather, Larry Schell is my advisor. And one of the things that I always found so interesting is to trace uh, not just who trained who, but to see what sort of theoretical or practical influence these folks have had. I never got the chance to meet him. He had several years of suffering from Alzheimer's that led to his eventual passing. So I never had a chance to meet him but in reading his work, which I read when I was a student, and then in preparation for this, this interview, I was struck by the continuity of both approach theory and sort of uh, the practical side of getting down in the, in the communities and developing programs for teaching that Larry did and that I do that I didn't even realize mm. connected back. And then you know, many of the colleagues we have in the Human Biology Association, the one that just pops out because he, when he passed, he tweeted that Louise Lample was his advisor making uh, Chris Kazawa, Louise's student, mm. my cousin, my academic cousin. <laughs> so we, we have lots of, of threads of these legacies that, that stretch throughout our, our relatively young discipline. So that's not a surprise. <laughs> And you also bring up an interesting point about kind of the unconscious even impact that our advisors and our advisors' advisors have on us and the way that we approach the field and our work. So let's bring them on and hear a little bit more about Frank Johnston's legacy and impact yeah. on the field. And I'm really excited to meet Babette because so many people that he trained uh, went into applied work and we never get to mm -hmm. meet those folks at conferences with, you know, except Although apparently she does come to our conference. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know. And that I have met and I have no memory of this. All right. <laughs> Hello, my name is Larry Shell. I'm a uh, biological anthropologist and a biomedical anthropologist at the uh, State University of New York at Albany. My research interest is in the effects of urban life, urban living on human biological variation, particularly the a development of children, both prenatal and postnatal, and even more specifically on the role that pollution, different kinds of pollutants play in affecting our development. I'm also affiliated with the uh, School of Public Health, the Epidemiology and Biostat Department, 
and I direct a center on minority health disparities. I teach courses on growth and development and on cities, as you might expect. <laughs> All right, Babette, how about you? Hi, uh, my name is Babette Zemmel. I am a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Perlman School of Medicine. And uh, my home is at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, which is the pediatrics arm of, of the medical school. And I've been here for 29 years doing research in childhood growth and development. I uh, run the Nutrition and Growth Laboratory, which has grown over the years. And we now have about 40 different protocols at any one time that might be coming through my lab where subspecialty physicians across a very, very broad range of, of subdisciplines are doing research in child growth and nutrition and the development of the skeleton and body composition, that kind of thing, uh, because it's recognized, particularly with children, that health and disease are very intertwined with growth and development. And to understand the complications of diseases or their treatments, you really need to look at uh, growth and nutritional status. We also have studies of healthy children because my interest is in what is normal variability in children and how it relates to health and disease in later in adulthood, but also as a kind of a frame of reference for those groups of children who have serious chronic illnesses, and we need to understand how that works. So my own work is on skeletal development and development of obesity in longitudinal studies. And I work with epidemiologists and nutritionists, anthropologists, and uh, many different kinds of medical subspecialties. Well, we want to thank both of you for joining us today to talk about the legacy of Francis Johnston, who is both of your doctoral advisors. And the reason we chose you from among the over 30 students that he advised over a long career is because you represent both an academic subset as well as an applied subset. So I wonder if you could take turns maybe telling us a little bit about his career and how that's informed the direction you've taken in your career. Larry, you want to start? Or would you like okay. to start? I don't mind starting because I, I wrote this memoriam, so I'm fairly up to date about his uh, career. And we started in skeletal work with uh, Indian old population working under Snow, who was actually out of Chicago, I think, or Cleveland. Uh, not Harvard. See, that's a different strain completely from the Hooten descendants. Mm -hmm. And it's a more medical side of biological anthropology, I think. And after getting his degree, he, you know, he started doing uh, field work in Peru with the Cachanawa, a full range, you know, growth, genetics, a whole range of observations that characterized biological anthropology in the, in the mid-60s. But after that, his work really kind of focused more on nutrition and growth. And I think for, for the subsequent projects, in, especially in Guatemala, he was really a growth expert. I think that one of the, I think one of the themes or one of the threads in his personality was kind of a service thread. It wasn't very, wasn't very noticeable back in 1972 when I started working with him, but I can see where it came from when it blossomed in the late 1990s. Mm. Uh, he, had, he had done a lot of research with impoverished people, disadvantaged people in Guatemala and other Latin American countries. He had been to Cuba. I think he, he saw a connection between social factors and the health of, of the population very, very early. But okay. how about you? 
since his passing and all of the dialogue among his students, it's really given us a lot of time to really rethink things. And I actually just this afternoon came to a realization seeing that, you know, knowing that he was chair of the Department of Anthropology at Penn from 1982 to 1994. And my tenure in graduate school was somewhere in there. And he really, I think he really strongly influenced the four-field approach in anthropology. It was a very, very strong theme when I was in graduate school. And I think that some departments had started to give up on it at that time because it means that everybody really needs to be a generalist and um, have expertise in a lot of different things, which makes life very difficult. But I think that it was really held near and dear in the anthropology department at that time. And it was very much a part of his philosophy and his approach to things. And that's part of what drew me to going to Penn and working with him. Don't you think, Larry? Oh, definitely. I don't know how much was Frank and how much was Penn, but, but when I started there, the four field approach was biblical in its importance. You know, it was, it was what we did. It was American anthropology. Right. And uh, we had, I had two history of anthropology classes in my first year, really, really threading all those different themes together. And, you know, Boaz, I mean, he did some archaeology, did a lot of linguistics, did a lot of biology, did some cultural. That was what made anthropology unique was the integration. I mean, I still feel that that's a possibility, a, uh, an advantage of four field anthropology today. And he, you know, he wrote a very good book with uh, Seth Lowe who was at one time, I think, president of the AAA yep. on what, Children of the Urban Poor, yep. which was a very integrative book, very cultural, very biological. She was a cultural anthropologist, and he wrote a textbook with Henry Selby, also another cultural anthropologist out of Texas. So I think absolutely right, uh, Babette, you know, that was, that was strong in him. The force was strong and frank there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so I think you're all kind of leading a little bit in this direction, but let's be very explicit about it, I guess. Uh, what do you think some of his key insights were on human growth and development, but also that role of the integration of biocultural anthropology and, um, and taking that four-field approach to human growth and development? Would you like well, to start first, Babette? Go yeah. ahead. He, he very much viewed the child as being a product of the social context in which they growing up. And it was a pervasive theme through, throughout all of the work he did. I mean, just starting with like the dissertation that Larry did, you know, on, on the environment and, and his whole trajectory. So uh, Larry, you want to talk about that a little bit and, and maybe how that fits in? Before Larry answers, I'm curious, where do you fall in the sort of timeline in terms of students of his? I left Penn in 1979, and I finished my degree in 1980. And I, I started the program in 1980, and I graduated in 89. So we're sort of sequential. I saw him, I waved to him in the halls as he was leaving with his degree. <laughs> I think I met you at the, at the meetings at the World Trade Center mm -hmm. in New York. I think that was the first time, yeah. I think Frank was, was really very data-driven. You know, he wasn't a theorist in the, in the sense that, let's say, uh, Goodman or Leatherman are theorists. And I think the data showed him something. You know, he started out his first field work outside of Philadelphia, did his dissertation on Phil with Philadelphia data. Mm. His first field work out of there was the Cachanao in Peru. And he was, you know, he was, went, as I said, he went for genetics, he went for growth, he went in a lot of different traditional ways. 
But when he started working in Guatemala, I think that uh, subsequently, I remember him doing papers on trying to partition genetic and environmental influences on growth and coming out very strongly, finding that the environmental factors really were very, very strong. Mm. And I think he responded to that intellectually. There was also some other work done by um, Jean-Pierre Habiche and Ray Martorell with, with NCAP, which showed pretty clearly that, uh, that there was a lot of variation by social class in a society, but that among the most upper, upper of the social classes, whether you were in Africa or in uh, Italy or the United States, those kids grew almost the same. So there's a real strong mounting evidence that uh, environmental factors had a huge influence on growth. I mean, we all know that there are some exceptional populations, forest dwellers of, of Africa, for instance. Uh, I don't know if you brought them to the United States, how well they, what they would grow like. People used to say the same thing about the Maya, you know, oh, they're small people. They're just small people. But when Barry Bogan studied them, they weren't small people. Right. You know? <laughs> I think Frank was responding to the evidence he, he discovered as a scientist. Yeah, I hear echoes of, and, and probably because I was your student, but I hear echoes of, of you as my advisor and, and sort of the data-driven, atheoretical, or not atheoretical, but more data-driven approach that, that I know you for as well. And I'm curious, Babette, how you then see his influence, perhaps. I haven't seen you in action. So do you feel his influence in the work you do every day? Oh, absolutely. Just to illustrate my, my two major projects right now, uh, one of them is uh, the genetics of bone and body composition in children, which sounds like it's all biology driven, except that we have measures of physical activity and dietary intake, and we're looking at the interaction of those two and how much they explain you know, bone accretion across the course of development and how much the maturational factors, biological determinants other than genetics are influencing bone accretion. And my other study is looking at rapid weight gain in infants in, in the first two years of life with a heavy emphasis on the microbiome because I am partnering with microbiologists, but I really think the social determinants of and it's an all African-American population that's recruited from West Philadelphia. And I really think it's going to be stress and depression and food insecurity that are going to be in predictors of infant growth. And they may, be, they may be determinants of the microbiome, but I, don't, I really think that it's these contextual factors that are influencing growth. So I, yeah, it's, we're just kind of filling in on or sort of following through with what Frank started. But the other thing that he also was uh, tapped into very early was, you know, in the 1970s and 80s, there was a lot of malnutrition globally. And there was somewhere in there, there was this transition, maybe it was in the 90s, where there was the recognition that obesity was increasing in prevalence. And he was involved in that very early movement, looking at like early predictors of obesity and the health consequences of obesity. I think a lot of the research paradigms that we use right now, I don't know that we can totally credit him with initiating them, but he certainly sensed their value, their importance, their strength, and passed that along to his students. I just wanted to interject that I, I noted in the piece that Larry wrote, you reference him being sort of 
ahead of the social determinants of health model, but using different terms, maybe the participatory action work he was, or service learning. There was definitely an academic in the community while studying the health outcomes piece that that we have maybe new names for now. I don't, I don't mm -hmm. necessarily mm -hmm. believe those were just invented, but. I think that's absolutely right. I stand by those assertions in the memoriam, you know, that that he was early. So I'm looking at a list of his books and uh, taking off from what Babette just said. In 1988, he edited a book with Claude Bouchard from Canada called Fat Patterning During Growth and Later Health Outcomes, 1988. I mean, that was way before developmental origins journal came out, you know, he was very sensitive to the nutrition problem and uh, its importance in, you know, in health in general. You know, I wanted to go back to something you said before the microphone went on, and I hope that's, uh, I hope that's okay. Yeah, that's absolutely. absolutely. You, were talking, you were talking about how, you know, how a lot of his students didn't go into academic, and, and I think you said something about you don't see that, and it, it's, it's very true. You know, the only people you see in academia are the people who go into academia, so someone could have, you know, 99 students who work in government and one student in academia, and nobody knows that this guy, this student, this person in academia, his professor, produced 99 students, you know. It's only when the society decides they want to have a session on getting jobs outside of academic anthropology departments that you, these people come out of the woodwork. Linda Valeroy comes out of uh, CDC, you know, Catherine Ballou comes out of CDC, or somebody comes out of a Department of Health, or, or out of the hospital, or out of CHOP, or out of a nutrition center at UNC, you know. They're all over, but they're almost invisible until you actually bring them in, you know, wrap your arms around them and, and bring them under the umbrella, you know. Yeah. They belong there. So, you know, asking about whether or not Frank's work really influenced the fact that a lot of his students didn't go into academic departments, I think you also have to realize that the job availability for academic departments was pretty lean there for a while. So it wasn't just his influence, it was also the environment that we were facing as we graduated. I think that that's entirely true. I mean, if you look at the demography of anthropology departments, a lot of hiring in the 60s, you know, it took 30 years before people started to retire. And now we have a lot of full up departments and it's going to be a while before another wave retires. Yeah. But yeah, there is that demography issue. I think that what what I would do with what the bet said is say that he prepared people to take jobs outside of academic anthropology. And I think that's that's the, kind of the secret. The what did that look like in, in, you know, working with him and being in that department? What did that look like, the applied aspect of it all? I don't recall him being very heavy handed about that at all. It was just, you know, here's growth and, and it's, it's very, what he called eco-sensitive, said that many times. You know, if you want to know more about growth variation and health variation, you've got to look at the ecology, the social and the physical ecology. I think that, you know, I, he wasn't a heavy-handed guy. He wasn't saying, you know, you're going to do your dissertation on this. He, he gave his students a lot of freedom to explore what they wanted to do. But, yeah, I mean, I think he prepared people well for, you know, for the variety of, of careers. He didn't get explicitly, you know, action research until the 1990s. I think uh, Penny Gordon Larson was his first student who did work in that area. Mm -hmm. I think so. Yeah, let's see, when was it? In 1991, I think. He took a course on nutrition 
and he involved his students in the Turner Middle School in West Philadelphia. Now, West Philadelphia, it's not a wealthy community. I mean, it's a poor community, and it's largely a minority, I believe. I don't have the stats on it, but, you know, Penn had a, a I'd say, fractured relationship with West Philadelphia mm. for quite a while, and in 1991, this was a big step towards building a bridge with the local community. And his students, his undergraduate students, did nutrition education. They had a, a fruits and vegetables store. They had a garden to, to plant and raise vegetables and then sell them. And the students learned about retail. The students learned about vegetables. The students learned about agriculture. I mean, it was a real all-round effort and education. And from that grew, I think, the Penn uh, Center for Community Partnerships, which is now called the Netter Center, N-E-T-T-E-R. It's, uh, it's a real model for this kind of stuff now across the country. Yeah, I was really excited to see that. I, I read the paper that he wrote about that as someone who does anthropology education at elementary schools. Oh, right. There's not a lot of models out there for us when we're doing this work, I can tell you from searching widely. So finding them is like finding a, a gem. Yeah. Well, I'm, and he'd be very glad to know it's been, it's helpful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, in 2009, he wrote a book called The Obesity Culture Strategies for Change. You know, again, applied, practical. You know, at one point he said to me, um, you know, what's the point of writing another data-driven paper? He wrote a lot of data-driven papers. Mm -hmm. What's the point of that? If you're going to have an impact, go, you know, go right for the artery there, you know, try to make an impact. And I think that the Netter Center and, and UNI, the Nutrition, Urban Nutrition Initiative, those are big deals. And he even collaborated on a book called Knowledge for Social Change, Bacon, Dewey, and the Revolutionary Transformation. Yeah, that a, a whole book about universities being involved in social change. A whole historical uh, background on that. I, I yeah. skimmed through that. That was fascinating. It's a, it was a good last effort for him. You know, that was 2017. He was already beginning to be sick. Mm. Uh, but he probably did the writing the year or two before that, you know, before it was published. You can get a sense then of a, of a career arc, right? We build our repertoire of knowledge with the data driven, but then there's a big why left. Like, why am I doing all this? Like, yeah. what legacy do I want to have? Or how can anthropology be impactful in a realistic right. sense? Well, well, I think a, lo a lot of people make a contribution, a very important contribution by, by uh, discovering new, new knowledge, new facts, you know? You know, I think he did that for quite a while. And then he decided that he wanted to make a contribution by applying them. Directly. I mean, really directly. Mm -hmm. How was he as a mentor? He was kind of like a very permissive parent. He was encouraging. He was, he, he didn't direct people. I suppose if people wanted direction, then he might offer suggestions, but he, he was more about creating opportunities for his students, like sort of opening the door saying, here, what do you think about this? Do you want to like, take it and run with it. And he created amazing opportunities for me. I, he, he was supposed to go to New Guinea and didn't want to go and just kind of offered it to me. And I was, I couldn't have been more thrilled to do that. So I did my dissertation work and 
Papua New Guinea. And even with um, the International Congress of Oxology, it was in Philadelphia, and he said, hey, why don't you help me organize this? And so I was only two years out of graduate school and had my first opportunity to organize an international meeting. Mm. So, you know, he just created these opportunities for students that were just phenomenal, sometimes through his, his extensive network when there were always a lot of international visitors and when they would come to visit, he would be sure to give them time with the graduate students and give them time to talk. And uh, so that had a huge influence as well. Yeah, I mean, I really uh, I echo so much of what Babette is saying. You know, he, I was a first year graduate student and I was about as fresh out of college as you could be, I, even though I had taken two years before starting. And he handed me this invitation to write a chapter for the handbook of uh, North American Indians on growth of American Indians. I was just amazed. And I wrote a term paper on agent menarche. And I showed up at the, the AAPA meetings that first year in the spring of, of, of 1973. And he had included me as an author on the presentation. Hmm. And he just was so, he was just not selfish. He was just really, really shared. And he was very international, you know. He uh, was connected to the European Anthropological Association. He encouraged me, uh, maybe others too, to present there, to go there and meet people, see what science, the science was like over there. Uh, he was very closely connected with the Society for the Study of Human Biology, the UK version. You know, the, the SSHB and the, the Human Biology Council used to be one organization. They split mm. up. Mm. I'm not sure when, probably in the late 60s. And, oh gosh, uh, I didn't even know that. Yeah, oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. right. Well, you know, antiquity <laughs> has its advantages as long as my memory is any good. So, um, wow. okay. so he was connected, you know, he's connected because he did a, he did a postdoc with Tanner and that introduced him to a lot of people and uh, to Tanner. And so, I mean, he, he just created a lot of opportunities for his students to meet other people and to do, to do things with them. You know, that ISGA Oxology Congress that Babette referenced, I mean, <laughs> Those were the leaders, the international leaders in the field that, that Babette was working with to make this Congress happen. It was a, it was, it was a big deal. Did yeah. you know that at the time, Babette? It was very daunting because I, I, I knew it was going to be a big deal. And it was a big deal to organize that conference. But it was, it was fantastic. And it really cemented a lot of connections for me. And, and also, you can see all of the intellectual connections that he had to, to Tanner and to other people. And, and those connections have probably been passed on to you as well, right? So just through, you know, having the, the connections that we make continue to influence us through our careers and onto our trainees. Yeah, I hear so much uh, that, that clicks into place, both reading the memoriam and listening to you talk and thinking about conversations we've had with Barry Bogan and how I know Noel Coward through Larry and uh, the Loughborough crew, you know, these, yeah. those international connections have not been accidents. Yeah. I want to encourage you both to uh, look up SSHB online and they do very good work over there. No? I'm always, I've always tried to get myself invited to a European conference. It's, it's gonna have to, gonna, that's the issue. You're going to have to invest at least in one and show up, you know, and then uh, they'll get to know you and, and they'll, they'll think well of you and invite you, I'm sure. Uh, he, Frank was also a very 
kind of a very congenial guy. You know, I, I know that there's some people who rubbed him the wrong way and maybe he rubbed some people the wrong way. I, I wasn't really noticing that. But, you know, he held a lot of uh, positions in the society. P president of the, of the AAPA for, for three years, you know, editor for, what, six years. You can rub people the wrong way that way. He just was a very, you know, people didn't mind voting for him for, for, for things, you know. He was a very nice guy. Hmm. Babette, you had something. Yeah, uh, one of the things that really stands out the most, aside from the fact that he strongly influenced my, my dissertation trajectory and my intellectual trajectory, a really important thing that he did for me was um, I had, a, uh, my first child was born while I was in graduate school. Actually, my first two children were born when I was in graduate school, but with my first one, I was writing my dissertation and I was a week, it was a week after my first child was born and he called me up and he said, I want to propose your, your name as a Dean's Fellow so that you have funding for next wow. year. Can you write me a prospectus? And in that, you know, that oxytocin haze, I had to put together a prospectus, but this is in the 1980s, in the mid 1980s. It didn't phase him at all that I was a graduate student, had a baby in the middle of writing my dissertation. He never questioned that I was going to finish. And I felt like he had more confidence than I did that I was going to finish and, you know, go on to have a, a full career. It just, he didn't miss a beat. It didn't, he never questioned it. And I, in retrospect at that time, that was really remarkable. Yeah, that's a testament. I mean, just to his character. And I think it also connects his research to who he was as a person that he saw you as a person and you know not just the graduate student but that you had life outside of what happened within that department and he wanted to support it i think that is an excellent testament to his character yeah i'm having a flashback to when i had <laughs> toddlers in grad school my first year and, and larry said to me my, I, my kids were all sick and i was freaking out because i was ta for him and he said no one on their deathbed ever wishes they'd spent more time at work go take care of your kids <laughs> And I have a, a new PhD student whose partner is pregnant right now and is, is having similar uh, stress. And I, I shared that story with him. Um, <laughs> I wonder how far that empathy stretches back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, to wrap up, and this is always the toughest question for, for folks to answer, because you have to basically sum up Frank Johnston's career <laughs> and lasting legacy in a couple of sentences. But what do you think his lasting contribution to, and it's hard to just say human biology because he has also contributed so much outside of academia, but let's just leave it at what do you think his lasting contribution is? I think that he, he really solidified childhood growth as a focus of study to understand human adaptation. Mm. That was really, I think that was really the lens by which he sort of looked at all of anthropology. I think that's very true. I think that he looked at growth or he used growth as, as a measure, you know, as a, as, a, as a way to understand what was affecting people biologically. And he definitely, I mean, I, I really think he made it a very substantial part of human biology. I mean, if you look at the AJHB, there's a hell of a lot of growth in there. Yeah. That's partly due to him you know, as an editor, but also as a, as a mentor of other people, as a supporter of other people, and, and also as a professor for his students. 
it puts into context a lot of the people that we know who are active in the field now who can trace their lineage through the Human Biology Association in particular, but through his many students. And uh, we were looking up the academic phylogeny earlier, sort of gets to your point that it leaves out two thirds of his legacy, but certainly within academic biological anthropology, folks are still focused on children and growth. Yeah, yeah. If you want to follow up on this somehow, you might talk to Bob Molina. Because I, I went to the phylogeny and I said, wait a minute, and Bob's truncated. You know, Bob was another one who put out a lot of students at a time when there weren't a lot of jobs, academic jobs in anthropology, but he also put them out you know, in that biomedical trained way and they took jobs everywhere else. I think some of his really incredibly bright students are not in anthropology. Bert Little and uh, John Himes, I mean, John's retired now, but public health or computational health, you know, population health. But Bob and Frank shared Krogman. I mean, uh, Bob was not one of Frank's students, but they both got this, I think, from Krogman. Mm. Mm -hmm. That's my guess. Yep, 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 absolutely. It's probably, uh, Karen and I need to do our homework for another episode, but, <laughs> but we talk a lot about the importance of applied work because I think all of us, especially when we teach undergraduates, know that 90, 95% of our undergraduates are never gonna take another anthropology class. Yeah. So what's the impact of anthropology on those students? And the same is true of grad students. We, at least speaking personally, still struggle to prepare them for non-academic jobs since for me, an academic job is what I know best. Mm -hmm. and we need more models like this and to trace those lineages out into the non-academic world to see the impacts that we have had so we can continue to support four-field anthropology and the, the importance of it. Yeah, yeah. If I can sum up what I've just taken away. That sounds like a, a Hackademics episode that we need to do, Chris, about <laughs> alt-ac positions. <laughs> It's going to take That's a lot of work to get idea. it together, but I think Thinking we need to do it. Well, I've got a list uh, of people who might be able to help you. Wonderful. <laughs> we, will, we will get that from you. I know you. how to find you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I want to thank you both so much for joining us today. And Babette, we totally need to get you on the show to talk about your work in particular. And I know we've had the chance to do that with Larry in the past, but we haven't with you. So expect an email again sometime in the okay. future to bring you back on. Okay. Uh, and I, I think you both did a, a great job memorializing Frank and really talking about his legacy, both in his work and as a person and what it's meant to the field and, and beyond academia. Yeah. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Sausage of Science. This is associate producer, Teresa Gildner. The Sausage of Science is supported by the Human Biology Association. Please be sure to check out the latest issue of the American Journal of Human Biology, Volume 32, Issue 5, a special issue entitled Human Biologists Confront the COVID-19 Pandemic. And if you like the Sausage of Science, please be sure to rate us and subscribe so you never miss an episode.